Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. That Supreme Personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna, out of His causeless mercy, appeared on this planet by His internal potency and enjoyed Himself amongst competent women as if He were engaged in mundane affairs. Purport. The Lord married and lived like a householder. This is certainly like a mundane affair, but when we learn that he married 16,108 wives and lived with them separately in each and every palace, certainly it is not mundane. Therefore, the Lord living as a householder amongst his competent wives is never mundane, and his behavior with them is never to be misunderstood as mundane sex relations. The women who became the wives of the Lord are certainly not ordinary women, because to get the Lord as one's husband is the result of many, many millions of births to pasya, austerity. When the Lord appears on different lokas or planets, or on this planet of human beings, he displays his transcendental pastimes just to attract the conditioned souls to become his eternal servitors, friends, parents, and lovers respectively in the transcendental world where the Lord eternally reciprocates such exchanges of service. Service is pervertedly represented in the material world and broken untimely, resulting in sad experience. The illusion living being conditioned by material nature cannot understand out of ignorance that all our relations here in the mundane world are temporary and full of inebriety. Such relations cannot help us be happy perpetually, but if the same relation is established with the Lord, then we are transferred to the transcendental world after leaving this material body and become eternally related with him in the relation we desire. The women amongst whom he lived as their husband are not, therefore, women of this mundane world, but are eternally related with him as transcendental wives, a position which they attained by perfection of devotional service. That is their competency. The Lord is Param Brahma, or the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Conditioned souls seek after perpetual happiness in all places, not only on this earth, but also on other planets throughout the universe, because constitutionally a spiritual spark, as he is, can travel to any part of God's creation. But being conditioned by the material mode, he tries to travel in space by spacecraft and so fails to reach his destination. The law of gravitation is binding upon him like the shackles of a prisoner. By other processes, he can reach anywhere. But even if he reaches the highest planet, he cannot attain that perpetual happiness for which he is searching life after life. When he comes to his senses, however, he seeks after Brahman happiness, knowing it for certain that unlimited happiness which he is seeking is never attainable in the material world. As such, the Supreme Being, Param Brahman, certainly does not seek his happiness anywhere in the material world nor can his paraphernalia of happiness be found in the material world. He is not impersonal, because he is the leader and supreme being amongst innumerable living beings who cannot be impersonal. He is exactly like us, and he has all the propensities of an individual living being in fullness. He marries exactly like us, but his marriage is neither mundane nor limited by our experience in the conditioned state. His wives, therefore, appear like mundane women, but factually, they are all transcendental, liberated souls, perfect manifestations of internal energy.
That Supreme Personality Shri Krishna, out of his causeless mercy, appeared on this planet by his internal potency and enjoyed himself among companied women as if he were engaged in mundane affairs. Kutasto, he's in the place surrounded by Sriyuratna. Ratna means jewel, jewel-like women, Reme, and he is enjoying them. Prakrito Yuta, as if it were Prakriti, as if it were matter. But he is Bhagavan. He's invented by his own Swamaya, by his own energy on this Nadaloke, on this planet of humans. Often Krishna's Leela is called Nala Leela. So this is a wonderful purport. I mean, it, Prabhupada is making a very logical progression as to how Krishna is the Supreme Lord and has wonderful human-like yet transcendental pastimes. Amazing how Srila Prabhupada will often pack the majority or sometimes all of our philosophy of Krishna consciousness into one purport or one paragraph or sometimes even one or two sentences. And Srila Prabhupada will often say about the Shastra that if you can just understand one word of the Shastra that you can become self-realized. So so much this this purport in this verse is, is in layers in layers of, of understanding that one can get to deeper and deeper and more and more expansive understanding of reality. So why is this verse here? Because we want to know what is true. We want to know what is true. Why do we care about what is true? One devotee website I visited yesterday had an article by uh, in some, some business journal that said, give up all quests for certainty. Only then will you be happy because you can never know the truth anyway and might as well just learn to live with uncertainty. What was interesting was that the author stated, of course he was thinking it was caused by evolution, which means he thinks that's his truth, which means of course he does have some kind of certainty. Uh, But anyway, he was making a very strong case that human beings have a huge urge for certainty. We have an inborn, hardwired biological, according to him, urge for certainty. And therefore, even though he was himself propounding uncertainty, he based his suppositions on some concepts of certainty. So he had some what we call a priori or previously accepted uh, axioms of truth. His axiom of truth is that we evolved. That was his axiom of truth. So this search for certainty, this search for truth, it's inherent in us. And therefore, even those who propound relativity, absolute relativity, which is very distinct, by the way, from Einstein's theory of relativity, but those who propound that there's absolute relativity, that there is no truth, that we cannot find any truth, they propound such theories as absolute truth. In other words, if you say to them, well, okay, you have all your relatives' truth, but would anybody be allowed to accept something as absolute truth? They'd say absolutely not. So why do we want to know what is the truth? Because otherwise, how would we plan where we're going and how to get there? Now, if I want to buy milk, I would like to know where it's going to be found. And I want to know what is a valid way of getting there. I don't want to have a wrong destination or wrong Instructions. This is 
very easy to understand. So if I want to go swimming, I want to know where there's actually water. I don't want to be given a destination that's just a photograph of water or just a picture of water. And if I want to go swimming, I don't want to go to a place where there's only a cup of water or a pot of water or a puddle of water. And then I want to have a proper route. How do I get there? And I want it to be a route that's actually going to take me there. So what we want is, uh, has been analyzed by psychologists. Uh, we want, basically, you can narrow it down. We want life. We want existence, which means we want things such as security, vitality, energy. Life means also individual life. We want things like autonomy and freedom peace, which is very tied to security. We want happiness, which means fun, relationships, communication, consideration, appreciation, meaning, satisfaction. And we want knowledge. We want understanding. We want, again, this is related to meaning and satisfaction, authenticity. So all these things that are driving the human being, and we could even say they are driving... Uh, those who appear in bodies lower than human beings, but at least we can see that they're driving the human being. We can understand, as what the Shastra said, is the nature of the soul, Satchitananda Vigraha. And we, are, we want to know what is true because we want to know where we're going to get those things. Where is the place where I can get all of those things? Where is the place where I can get uh, both freedom and connection? Where I can get authenticity, where I can get fun and play and autonomy and freedom and security. And, and of course, materially speaking, each of our destinations give us a little bit of some of those at the expense of another. <laughs> so, you know, maybe we have play, but what we're doing is not very meaningful. And if we're doing something meaningful, it may not be very fun. And if we have a lot of freedom, we may not have a lot of connection. If we have a lot of connection, we may not have a lot of freedom and so forth and so on. If we have a sense of community, we may not get much autonomy. If we have a lot of autonomy, we may not get much community. And we never get any of those things in satisfaction. So we're looking, as Prabhupada says in this purport, we're looking for what's authentic. We're looking for truth. Right? It says here that we're seeking after perpetual happiness, not only on this earth, but on other planets, because we're a spiritual spark. So we're looking for what is going to be eternally wonderful. Therefore, we need to know who is it, what is it, where is it, what is the proper destination by which I will find everything I'm seeking, actually find it. Find it it, to the extent that I want it, which is unlimited. (laughs) I want these things uh, unlimited in both quantity and quality. I want it unlimited in time and space. Robert's talking here about perpetual. And then, of course, I want to know the way to get it. And Prabhupada also talks here about that, about the abhideya, the process. So what what is the absolute truth? What is absolutely true? Well, just using prachaksha and anuman, our sense perception and logic, we can understand that the absolute truth must be something that we call God, that a God must exist. This is not very difficult to understand. The only logical argument of the atheist against the existence of God as being the absolute truth is that 
in addition to wonderful things in the world, there's also suffering and disorder. And they're, that's their only logical argument, that if there's a God, that they're saying either he must not be very competent or very kind, and therefore they would rather say there's not a God at all. Of course, this is as foolish as a child deciding that his parents don't exist because sometimes the parents meet out some sort of punishment. So if, uh, if my parents take my toy away, if my parents won't let me have dessert until I finish my meal, if my parents put me in time out, therefore they must not exist because parents are supposed to be kind. Uh, so, and the, you may say, well, the child can understand their punishment, whereas we cannot, but that's not a fact. Children generally do not understand why their parents are restricting them or training them in some way. So this is the only logical argument of the atheist. Otherwise, just using our senses and logic, we can see, and if this was a class in person, I'd be doing this very interactively, we can see that there's patterns in the universe, like the uh, Fibonacci numbers, the golden triangle, the golden mean. There's a universal standard of beauty. We see that there's an incredible amount of order in the universe, again, according to patterns, that if the planets were off just simply by an inch, that everything would be havoc. So just like if you're going to take some mode of public transportation, an airplane, a train, or a bus, there is no way that that train, bus, or plane is going to arrive and depart exactly on schedule. In fact, it may not arrive or depart at all. Whereas we can tell the movements of the heavenly bodies down to a millionth of a second and predict them in advance for hundreds or thousands of years. So in order to do that, there must be some incredible force of intelligence behind the universe. We can, uh, then we might say, okay, well, I can understand there must be a God. I mean, again, this, this doesn't take a whole lot of intelligence. Anybody can understand that if you see a painting of a flower, there must be an artist. I mean, we know that. In fact, we have a, an innate knowledge of what is the difference between something that's created by intelligence and something that appears to be random. You know, the archaeologists, they can tell the difference between a stone and a stone tool. And again, any of us, even something very, very simple, like a mat on the floor, uh, you know, we can understand that this was created by an intelligence. So a painting of a flower, so what to speak of the real flower? The real flower must have been created by somebody who was far more intelligent than the artist who painted the picture of a flower because the picture has no innate smell, the picture is not soft, the picture cannot reproduce. Right? The picture cannot produce other flowers. And nor is a picture ever able to capture the intricacy of the real flower. One of my grandsons works with a computer artistic program called Blender. And he said that although he can create what looks like photographs of almost anything, he said it's very difficult to create a cloud that really looks like a real cloud. All right, so we know there must be a God. Now the question is, is that God personal or impersonal? Personal or impersonal? So with a painting of a flower, a painting of a flower cannot be created by an impersonal force. It just doesn't happen. You know, we used to have this radio rum where we would 
we joked about, okay, put all the ingredients for a house on a vacant lot and take a stick of dynamite and blow them up and see if you get a house. You know, just force doesn't create things of order and beauty. Just blind force. This doesn't do it. It doesn't create something with integrated parts. You know, just like I have a, I'm using a computer to give this class. I'm using a recording device. So this has many parts that were designed to integrate with one another, and each of these parts by themselves has no value. So that's not created by a force, by just some blind force. I mean, maybe some blind force can sculpt a rock with wind and water into some beautiful shape, but it cannot create some interlocking working mechanism. That's not done by blind force. This is one of the arguments against evolution. You know, how, do, how would the different parts evolve separately when they have no value in and of themselves? They only have value when they work together. Because Darwin's idea is that, you know, something evolves by chance, and then because that gives the organism some advantage, therefore it keeps being reproduced down in the generations. Those organisms without it die off. But what is the advantage in having part of the system? What, what, what is it? Why would that be an advantage? If I just had a monitor without the computer, how, how would that give me, or I just had a mouse, you know, how would that give me any kind of an advantage? I just had a cable. You know, wh why would I do that? So that's the blind force cannot do that. It has to be a person with an intelligence and with a plan. So we can understand God must be a person. Of course, we also see aspects of impersonal force. We definitely see aspects of impersonal force, but we do see that there must be a person. All right, so this kind of person, we've understood must be a person, has to be someone who has intelligence and some purpose and some design. And now the next question is, well, is it many people or is it one person? Now, maybe it's a group of people. But we find in our experience that ultimately, even in a group of people, there's one chair. I'm working with a group of people right now where our chair is not very active. Our chair has told everyone in the group, I'm going to do this and this and this, but I'm not really going to be the main leader moving everything forward. And no one else has stepped up to the position. The result is that the group isn't really active. There's nobody giving any impetus. Another situation I had recently where I was with a group that I'd worked with for many years, and the chair, it was a very um, collegial group. It was not a hierarchical group in any sense of the term. We were all working very much as peers. Uh, yet, when our chair left this world, when he, when he left his body and passed away, the group was not active. And when we were contacted by other people, nobody would respond. So we'd get emails and nobody would respond because everyone's waiting for someone to be the leader who's going to take the position of responding. And it was only when one of the members decided, well, I'll act as an interim leader, that anything went forward. They say that the most unstable form of business management is a partnership. So in our experience, you no know, matter how many groups of people there are, there always has to be a leader. 
So we would say that even if there are groups of gods, there must be one ultimate god. All right, now is that ultimate god male or female? Is the ultimate god male or female? So certainly within history there have been women who've been in a strong position of leadership. There's been nations ruled by queens, including within India, and including within recent memory. There have been times when there was a woman at the head of government. In fact, Ganga Mata Goswamini was made the queen before she renounced the world and went to Radhakun. Uh, but in general, we see that ultimate leadership is taken by a male. In general. Uh, not always, but in general. Although we do also see female leadership. Then we can ask, is God going to be young or old? So we would have to conclude that God must be very, 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 very old because he's been existing for a long time. At the same time, we see a world that's full of energy. Generally, when you get old, <laughs> your energy decreases. Your playfulness also decreases. But we see a world that's very full of energy and playfulness that within all kinds of life there's an urge for playfulness and for fun. Uh, so we're maybe a little confused whether God is old or young. Then we might ask, well, what does he do? What does this God do? What kind of activities does he do? Does he sim is he simply engaged in creating roses and lotuses and deciding who suffers or enjoys? Or And this becomes a little bit more mysterious to us we start moving out of the realm of sense perception and logic. So let's look now at the Vedic understanding of God. What's wonderful about the Vedas, uh, in comparison to the other currently existing religious scriptures of the world, is that the Vedas give us a large range of choices of our destination, and a large range of choices of understanding what is the absolute truth. The Vedas give us a large range of choices in terms of our preferred route for achieving the absolute truth. Now, you know, if you went to a travel agent and you said, I want a wonderful tropical vacation, so they might tell you about Hawaii and they might tell you about Tahiti and Puerto Rico and... Barbados, they may give you a number of different destinations, and they may give you a number of different routes even to get to the same destination. So you could get to Hawaii. I remember when my uh, youngest son got married here on the island, although he lives in, on the mainland, that when his wife's sister came in order to save money, she took a route where she had five or six stops, you know, and she had a 20-hour trip. So there may be many different routes to the same destination. Or you could get here by plane, and you could get here by boat. I don't think you could get here by swimming, unless you're a fish. Uh, but anyway, so that's there in the Vedas. That, that's there. That we cannot doubt that. We cannot doubt that. We say, Ete chamsa kala pumsa krishna stu bhagavan swayam. And ramadi murti shukala niyame natistan nana avatar makaro bhuvaneshi kinsu. We say that among all of the forms of Godhead, that Krishna is the chief, that in comparison also to the Brahmaitin, Paramatmaitin, Bhagavaniti, Sabjate, that in comparison to his uh, force and Paramatma, he is the chief. 
that Krishna is the source of the Brahman, the Brahman is resting on him. And so we are giving knowledge of what is the ultimate, most satisfying, most complete, most wonderful manifestation of the truth. But that is not to deny that the others are also manifestations of the truth. Brahman is also, Brahmati, Bhagavaniti, Bhagavaniti, Sabjita. Brahman is also the absolute truth. Paramatma is also the absolute truth. Krishna is, there's also a, a, a group. <laughs> there's so many expansions. Krishna, Balaram, Prajumna, Aniruddha, Sankarshan. And yet there's only one. Advaitam, Achutam, Anadim, Anantarupam. Anantarupam, he has unlimited form. So yes, there's many gods. But yet, Advaitam, he's only one. Is he male or female? Yes, he's male. Adyam Purana Purusham. He is the original person, original man. Purusha means man. And yet we see that he is always with a female, like here. Sri Ratna. We see that Narayan is with Lakshmi. Ram is with Sita. Krishna is with Radha. Wherever Krishna is there, his Shakti is also there. And there's no difference, as Krishna Das Kaviraj explained, there's no difference between Radha and Krishna. They have simply separated themselves eternally. And in a form as Mahaprabhu, they are existing together in one form. So God is both, although you can say he's ultimately male, he is both male and female. And of course, on an esoteric platform, God is ultimately female. The residence of Vrindavan, as Prabhupada explains, see Radharani is the most beautiful and the most intimate servant are actually servants of Sri Radha. They worship Krishna because he's associated with Radha rather than worshiping Radha because she's associated with Krishna. And so all of those things are true. God is a force. God is a person. God is many. God is one. God is male. God is female. God is both. God is old. God is young. Ajam Purana Purusham Navyovanamcha. He is the oldest. He is the wisest. He's been around forever. And yet he's young. He's only 15. He's playful. He's, he's whimsical. Right? <laughs> Marrying 16,108 wives and living with each of them separately. What a youthful thing to do. And yet he's very old. You know, when each of us were 15, we believed that we knew everything and that we were wiser than everyone, even our elders. But So Krishna actually is. You know, as we get older, we see, oh, when I was young, I was a fool. You know, if somebody could offer me now, or me to go back to being 16, I say, no way. I wouldn't mind being 16 with my present knowledge and understanding. So that's what Krishna has. He has usefulness with old understanding. So both old and young. And then what kind of a personality does he have? Is he righteous or is he naughty? As Narayana, as Rama, he's righteous. As Krishna, he's both righteous and naughty. He's Dhirodhata, Dhirodhata, Dhiraprasanta, and Dhiralalita. All of those are there within Krishna. But if one is, wants to be attracted to God as a supreme righteousness, then he can worship the Lord as Ram or as Narayana. Or if one wants some sweetness of Krishna, but yet is not interested in Krishna's naughty activities, he can worship Krishna and Dwaraka. Here we're reading about Krishna in Dwarka. 
And even within Vrindavan, uh, just like Prabhupada's talking here about the different saibhavs, one can worship Krishna as one's son or as one's master. One can have a, a relationship of master and servant with Krishna in Vrindavan. Right? One can have so many different relationships with Krishna even in Vrindavan. And each of those Krishnas is somewhat different. Each of those Krishnas is somewhat different. This is explained in the 14th chapter of the 10th canto when the living entities are all worshipping the Lord. And Sanatana Goswami explains that the Lord particularly manifests a certain quality for each jiva. And Lord Kapiladev explains that the Lord appears in the form with which we worship him. So in a very real sense, each of us has our own God. That, that, that's very real. It's very true. Each of us has our own personal relationship with God, and each of us understands God in our own personal way. You know, just like Chandravali, she doesn't like Radharani because she says that Radharani, when Krishna comes to apologize, she rebuffs him, and that hurts his feelings. And Radharani says, all oh, that Chandravali, she doesn't understand my Krishna because she's always just submissive and always accepting him. She doesn't give him the spice that he wants. So their understanding of Krishna is different. That's at the highest platform. Radharani, Chandravali are the two highest gopis. Yet they're, they're, they perceive Krishna differently. Or Yasoda Nandamaraj, why don't they ever guess that Krishna is running off at night with the gopis? Because they think he's not grown up enough. They think he's a little boy. They don't think he's ready for marriage. You know, they're hoping, oh, who are we going to marry him to? Mother Yasoda is always thinking, I wish I could marry him to Radha. <laughs> uh, but they don't think he's old enough. So it doesn't occur to them that he's having such pastimes. They see him differently, is my point. They perceive him differently. So, although there's one God and there's one absolute, he's understood differently. And only the Vedas give so much expansive understanding of the absolute truth that everybody can find their perfect destination. Prabhupada says here that to be transferred to the transcendental world after leaving this body and become eternally related with him in the relation we desire. That's in the middle of today's purport. In the relation we desire. So it's very, very individual that Krishna will relate with us as we desire. And therefore the Shastra has so many different descriptions. So many different descriptions. Krishna there is Matya. He says Nasinga. He has his Kurma as Narayan. And so many different forms of Narayan. Unlimited forms of Narayan each with their own mood, as Ram, as Dwarkadish, as Mikuranath, as, as Nandakishore. So then why are we emphasizing on Krishna? Why are we emphasizing on Krishna? Because we want to give humanity description of all of the forms of Godhead, so that a person's natural attraction can flower. And we want to give people the opportunity to have their natural attraction flower for the ultimate form of the Lord. It is certainly possible, according to Rupa Goswami and Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, and according to Sanatana Goswami and Brihad Bhagavatamrita, 
to gradually go from one conception of the absolute to another, just like Gopal Kumar. He's gradually moving from one realm to another, to another, to another. And each time he thinks, oh, now I found the absolute truth. And he's satisfied. Then after a while, he's not so satisfied anymore. And he says, wait a minute, this isn't what I wanted. And then he goes higher. He goes to the Brahman. And he meets Lord Shiva. He goes to Vaikuntha. He goes to Ayodhya, to Dwarka. And finally, he achieves his full satisfaction in Vrindavan. So we want to tell people that the full satisfaction, the full absolute, the full manifestation of the absolute truth, that is Krishna. So that everyone has that opportunity. And they don't have to go indirectly. They can go directly to Krishna. Directly to Krishna. However, if somebody has their uh, eternal attraction elsewhere, that is all right also. Just like Mahaprabhu, he converted many Ram Bhaktas to Krishna Bhaktas, but not all. Anupam uh, died as a Ram Bhakta. Muradi Gupta also as a Ram Bhakta. And it's interesting, you know, in South India tour, Mahaprabhu won Ram Bhakta. Uh, when Mahaprabhu came, that Ram Bhakta was chanting Ram Ram, and by the time Mahaprabhu left, he was chanting Krishna Krishna. But there was another Ram Bhakta who was in the ecstasy of being in the forest with Lord Ramachandra, and Mahaprabhu had such love and compassion for him and such a thrill of ecstasy at this devotee's mode of worship that he brought the Korma Purana. He made a special detour. He had the Korma Purana uh, copied and made a special detour just to bring this devotee the succor that he needed in order to go about his life happily and remain as a devotee of Lord Ramachandra. And Mahaprabhu was very pleased Right, like with Mari Gupta, he said, happy is that servant who doesn't desert his master and that master who doesn't desert his servant. So why, why is Krishna, among all the forms, why is Krishna? Because he is the totality. Whatever there, whatever exists in Krishna's many other forms, whatever exists in other worlds, whatever exists in other manifestations, all exist in Krishna and then more. And it's the depth of intimacy where our relationship with Krishna can actually fulfill our deepest desires. And we, this is exhibited here in, these, in this Dwarka Leela. And this is our idea of opulence. Surrounded by many jewel-like women enjoying in these palaces. And the, the sweetness of this human-like pastime. You know, the, the variety of emotion. The apparent Inebriety. You know, the, in the heavenly planets, they're not perspiring, but in Goloka Vrindavan, they're perspiring. In the heavenly planets, their clothes don't get dirty, but in, in Vrindavan, uh, their clothes get dirty. Krishna gets covered with, with dust and perspiration. But this is such a, a sweetness that cannot be found just in a realm of majesty. Uh, the, all these pastimes of Krishna, they are beyond, although they appear to be of a lower nature. So one may think, well, the pastimes of Narayana or the pastimes of Ram, they're, they're higher because they don't have these aspects of Naraloka, of, of Naralila, especially Narayan's pastimes. They're just full of majesty and, and grandeur and mystic opulence. <laughs> Uh, we think that God must be something like that. Uh, but actually, the ultimate God is the sweetest manifestation of that which is simple. 
So we as devotees of Krishna, we can go to whatever form and whatever pastimes attract us. So in the beginning of our Krishna consciousness, it's more a very general thing. Just like if someone goes to school first, everyone's taught the same thing. Everyone's taught there how to write, everyone's taught how to read, everyone's taught basic mathematics. And at some point, a individual's propensity starts to become manifest. And for some people, that manifests in the very beginning. There's some people at three and four years old, it's very clear what their natures and propensities are. But for most people, it happens somewhere between 12 and 14 that we start really exhibiting, well, these are the things that I really like, that I'm really good at, that I really feel some desire for. So the same in spiritual life. And then in spiritual life, at first, it's just general. Okay, you're Krishna Das, you're Krishna Dasi. That's not our eternal name. It's not that the Guru gives us our eternal name. But in a general way, to try to break our bodily conception. Oh, you're a servant of Krishna. You're a servant of Krishna. I was at one seminar that Burjan Prabhu gave, and he asked everybody, what's your relationship with Krishna? And many people were sort of stuck. Well, what's my relationship with Krishna? Uh, I guess I'm a servant. <laughs> you know, it was, it was very vague. And that's all right in the beginning. It has to be there in the beginning. But gradually as one matures, one starts having a natural awakening of an attraction for a particular relationship, Prabhupada says, according to our, our desire. According to our desire, a particular relationship of a particular form and a particular mood. And we should uh, welcome that. As Prabhupada says here, you know, in this world we have ex- bad experience with all these kinds of relationships. So we might think that the ultimate truth is, is Brahman. Or we might think that the ultimate truth has very few relationships. Just like Narayana, he has, of course, a conjugal relationship with Lakshmi. But his relationship with the residents of Vaikuntha is only as a servant in on reverence. So we might think, well, okay, I've had such bad relationships in this world, such bad intimate relationships. Either the relationships themselves are not satisfying, or as Prabhupada says here, they're untimely broken, resulting in sad experience. So I might think, well, better, better to worship a God that's really like on reverential and I'm just a servant and there's no intimacy <laughs> because I've been burnt here. Uh, but no, we can have these varieties of relationships with Krishna. And when this starts to awaken in us, we should be very joyful and nourish that awakening rather than run away from it, knowing that that's our ultimate good. And how do we achieve this? How do we achieve the ultimate truth? How will our awakening for the particular form of the absolute truth come about? So Prabhupada says here, with these women, he said that they, they achieved this as a result of many, many millions of births of Pasya. Now, when I read that in preparation for this class, I didn't feel very encouraged. You know, in this world, if you're told that in order to be a doctor, for example, let's say you want to be a medical doctor, or no, let's take one that's even harder, a tenured professor. So to be a tenured professor, you have to finish elementary and secondary school. Then you have to finish uh, your undergraduate degree. By that time, you're probably in your lower 20s, 21, 22. Then you've got to get a master's degree. That's going to take you one or two years. Then you've got to get a PhD. That's going to take you at least two years, usually three to seven years. 
So by that time, you're probably in your upper 20s. By the time you finished your PhD, 27, 28. And if you had to maintain, work and maintain yourself during that time, you may already be 33, 34, because it takes so much longer to get your degree while you're working. All right, then you want to go into a university. First, you go in just as like a visiting lecturer. And generally, it takes at least 10 years before you become tenured. So probably somewhere around the age of 40, you're going to become a tenured professor. So from the time you start school when you're five to the time you're 40, of course, your whole youth is gone. Youth probably says it's 15 to 40. So we can see that not very many people want to become a tenured professor, even though that when people rate job satisfaction, they find that tenured professor is one of the highest professions in terms of job satisfaction. You have a lot of autonomy and freedom. You can work in your area of interest and so forth. However, it takes a long time to become a tenured professor. They say that it's one of, that it's the, job that is one of the jobs that is the most at variance with a woman's biology. Because if a woman has a, a child during her time of peak fertility, it's very difficult for her to then go through this track to become a tenured professor. And we find that most women who are tenure professors, either they don't have children or they just have one or two children later in life. Now, what to speak of if I said, okay, well, if you want to attain perfection of life, you have to go through millions of births. That's how long it's going to take you. It's going to take you millions of births, and not just millions of births, but millions of births of austerity, chapasya. The word tapa also means suffering. So going to school is certainly tapasya, at least for me it was. But millions of births of tapasya. Now, how many people are going to do that? Not very many. Of course, these queens did do that. In fact, Rukmini, at least the Sadhana Siddha queen, and Srila Prabhupada appears in this purport to referring to queens who are Sadhana Siddha. But Rukmini, who is, of course, the Lord's eternal consort, is that when she was writing her letter to Krishna, she told him, if you don't come and kidnap me, then I'm going to perform austerities and give up my body while performing austerities, and I'm going to do these austerities life after life after life after life until you accept me. And Prabhupada says there in Krishna book that this is the only way to learn, win the Lord's famous, favor, dhrita vrita. Dhrita means difficult, vrata means vow. So to have this dhritavrita, of course, in the purport to that verse, Prabhupada talks about things like following codicy. And in, uh, in the modern society of devotees, generally following codicy means eating, you know, cheesecake with nut crust <laughs> and goranga potatoes and buckwheat pancakes with maple syrup. Uh, but, <laughs> oh, which is fine as the first step. But anyway, you know, how many people are going to really want Krishna that much to do millions of births of austerity? I mean, if we told everybody who came to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's movement, okay, your requisite for achieving the goal of life is millions of births of austerity, I don't think very many people would do it. However, we, we can say that generally it does take many, many lifetimes. Bahunam Janmanam Mante Janamam Prapajante Vasudevam Sarvamiti Samahatma Sadhulabaha. And Rupa Goswami explains that those of us who are taking up Krishna consciousness seriously in this lifetime, almost guaranteed this is not our first lifetime. So a uh, first relief we can get from this is that those of us who are listening to this class now, we might have already done those millions of lifetimes of austerity. This might be lifetime five million and two. 
of devotional service. So it's not necessarily that this is lifetime one. So we can read a sigh of relief over that one. The next thing here is that Chila Prabhupada later in the purport talks about how with their, the reason that the queens attain this perfection is they achieve the perfection of devotion. They achieve the perfection of devotion. That that was their only, that was the, their only qualification. See if I can find this again. Yes, it says, a position which they attain by perfection of devotional service, that is their competency. So perfection of devotional service doesn't have to take many millions of lives of austerity. Generally, it does, but it doesn't have to. That depends on us. And it really does depend on us. And I've, I've given this analogy many times, but... When I went to school, I used to wonder, why do they teach the same thing year after year after year? I mean, I remember in secondary school when I had to take a course on American history. So I was by that time maybe 15 or 16. And I thought, gosh, they've been teaching me American history since I was six years old. Why am I required to take a course in American history? (laughs) I used to sit at, oh, that class was so awful. I used to sit in the front of the room the front of the room center. So there was no question of doing anything else in the class other than pretending to listen. I didn't have to listen because I already knew all that stuff. You know, if you get to sit in the back of the class, in the corner, then you can easily, you know, keep a Sherlock Holmes book in your desk and read that instead of listening to Paul Revere and the Minutemen for the 10 millionth time. So I remember sitting in that class, and I used to fantasize about tearing down the walls, creating a hole in the wall, sneaking out and going to the beach. <laughs> but I also used to sit there and wonder, what do they think? Do they think that either the teachers I've had all these years were really awful, or that I was a really bad student, or, or both? That they've got to keep teaching me the same thing over and over again. And I determined one of the many times when I determined that I was going to reform education so students didn't have to be tortured that way. But then when I became a teacher and a school principal, I discovered why things have to be taught over and over and why people have to learn the same things for 12 or 15 years. Now, part of it may be due to bad teaching, but I tell you a lot of it is that most students don't really apply themselves. And I remember noticing this with grammar. Now, why do I have to teach the same thing over and over again for 12 years? And then I had one student, her name is Sachi. And she decided when she was 12, I'm going to learn grammar. I'm tired of learning the same thing. I'm going to do it. She applied herself. She learned everything she needed to learn of grammar in that one year. And I didn't have to teach her grammar anymore. I automatically gave her credit when she got to secondary school for grammar studies because she already knew everything. I mean, I might have had to give her an exam here and there just so I had a grade to write in the grade book, but there was no need to have her go through the instruction. So in the same way, if we can pick up the essence, whenever we pick it up, then we can attain instantly. Prabhupada would often say, in a moment. We can do it in a moment. 
that although for most living entities, it takes many, many millions of bursts of austerity in order to again see Krishna face to face, Prabhupada says, like you see anyone else, to feel this attraction for Krishna. We can do it much faster if we want to. And we have to look honestly at whether or not how fast we want to go. How fast do we want to go? What is it? What is our fear? And recently I, I saw something in my life where I, I really need to make a change with something. It's a service I'm working with that I really need to put aside and tender my resignation. But I've been so hesitant. I've written the email now three times. Uh, thank you very much for having me do this service, but I think I need to move on and do something else. And three times I haven't sent it. And I had to look at it and say, what am I afraid of? What am I scared of? What do I think I'm going to lose if I do this? So when we see, why aren't I surrendering to Krishna immediately? So that I can see him for myself. I mean, if we really want to know the absolute, what is the absolute truth? We had a nice class today in theory. Is the absolute truth a force or a person? Is the absolute truth many persons or one? Is it, is it male or female or both? Is it old or young or both? Are his activities like human righteousness or are his activities like human fancy and play or both? What kind of form does he have? If we really want to know the answers to those questions, of course we can hear from somebody who has seen directly we can hear from somebody who's seen the truth. Just like if I want to know what it's like in Japan, I can hear from someone who's been there. They can show me videos even. They can show me videos or a PowerPoint, photographs, a book about Japan. They can tell me their experience. But ultimately, if I want to know, ultimately, I need to experience myself. Ultimately, I need to experience myself. What is the absolute truth? Who is God? There's not going to be any other proof. There can be other evidences. We've given today so many logical evidences, so many scriptural evidences, some of Prabhupada's purport. He gives verse after verse after verse after verse that Krishna is the absolute truth. Of course, then you have to have faith in the Shastra from which he's quoting. Or you have to have faith that he's actually seeing the truth. You have to have faith in the person, in the guru. And our ultimate proof, our only ultimate proof, is going to be our direct perception. Nothing else is going to be ultimate proof. And even that ultimate proof is only going to be ultimate proof for us. So just like I know one devotee who said that he chanted without ceasing for one year on Maui. I'm sure he slept. And after one year of constant chanting, he had a darshan of Govinda, he said. Well, that's maybe the ultimate, whether he has or not, I don't know. That's the ultimate proof for him, but that's not the ultimate proof for me. I would have to trust his genuineness. I'd have to trust that he's not lying to me, and I have to trust that what he believes he experienced, he actually experienced. So what is my, if I really want to know the absolute truth, I have to have come to the point of direct experience 
And what is that which is stopping me from doing what's necessary to get that direct experience? We may say, well, I am already doing it. I'm chanting at least 16 rounds, following the regular principles, rising early in the morning, offering my food, reading the Shastra. But I think we all know what are the areas in which we're holding back. What are the areas in which we're doing things superficially? What are the areas in which we can improve the quality? What are the areas in which we're just acting according to false ego? So if we want to speed up the process and see the absolute truth for ourselves, to become again eternally related with him, as it says here, according to our desires, to enter into this world of Dwaraka as one of Krishna's queens or sons or servants, or to enter into Vrindavan in one of those relationships or Ayodhya or Vaikuntha, we can think at least, all right, what step can I take today? Maybe I can't do full surrender today. Of course, we could if we wanted to. But at least, what step can I take today? Management gurus say that if you want to become successful in life and business, by which they mean make a lot of money, but anyway, if you want to become successful, you have to do a few simple things. First of all, you have to have a very clear goal. Second of all, you have to write that goal down. Third of all, you have to make a plan to achieve that goal. And fourth, you have to do some work on your plan every single day. And research has shown that anyone who does those four things is almost guaranteed to achieve the success that they desire. Not 100%, but pretty close to it. And they've seen that doing those things is the difference between whether or not people achieve success. Of course, we're talking material definition of success. But the same thing is there. There must be a goal. The goal must be clear. We, we have to be able to write it down and have it in front of us. What is my goal? What is my sajya? Then we have to have a plan. Of course, there's a general plan for everybody. The Prabhupada, the Acharyas have given us a general plan. But we also need a specific personal plan. By the way, that plan is going to change. That plan is going to change. That personal plan is going to change. All we need to know is our plan that's appropriate for us today. As we progress, uh, that plan will of necessity change in its detail. And then we have to take some action on that to meet that plan today. That's all that we need to do. And if we do that, for each of our steps, Krishna will take 10 steps. We're walking towards Krishna. We take one step. He, he takes 10 steps towards us. And he will yoga shame of aham yaham. He will carry whatever we lack. And at a certain point, he will simply say, all right, I'm satisfied with your endeavor. Here I am. And then we will know for certain what is the absolute truth. So I want to thank my friend um, Govinda Mohini on the Govinda Mohini on the mainland who helped me to decide what my theme for this class was going to be because there's so many different possible themes in this purporting verse, perhaps two or three hundred possible themes that we could have focused on. So we can end here and if there's questions, comments, corrections, chastisements. All right, I muted everybody. Pre-conferencing, star six, if you uh, want to mute or unmute yourself.
Please, everyone, remain unmuted unless you have a question or comment. Please go ahead. Hare Krishna, thank you for a very nice class, Mother Urmila. I'm very interested in what you said that Mother Yasoda wants uh, Krishna to marry Radharani, and where could I read about that? I'd have to go look up the source, uh, but there's a, a Leela described where before Radharani is married, when she's at Yasoda's house, that Mother Yasoda says, you know, I want you to become my daughter-in-law. And she gives all sorts of ornaments to Radharani to take back to her family. And she also covers Radharani's hands with a turmeric mixture, which is generally done as part of a betrothal or an engagement. And on the way back to her home, uh, Radharani, because she doesn't want to marry Krishna, she washes her hands, what's it called? Jwal Pukar, I think is the name of the, of the lake. She washes her hands in a pond, which then turns yellow from the turmeric of her hands. And there's also described in the Leela that when, when Krishna sees this lake, which is turned yellow, he's very astonished by it. And therefore he enters it. And when he enters it, he's feeling Radharani's love for him. And in that entering this golden lake, he assumes the form of Godahari. Uh, so if you, if you like, I, it's, uh, this is described very nicely in one of Shivaramaraj's and he quotes the source from the Goswami literature where this particular Leela is described. But there's, right. a, there's also other places. That's the primary place. But there's also other places in the Goswami's books, and I, I don't remember the references offhand, where even after Radharani is already married to Abhimanyu, that when she comes to cook for Krishna every morning, that Mother Yasoda is thinking, I wish that she could have been my, my daughter-in-law. I wish that she could have married Krishna. You know, and there's even one place where she has a conversation with Nandamaraj about how foolish they were. There's also one Leela where plans are made to marry Radha and Krishna, and Purnamasi intervenes and says that if Radha and Krishna marry at that particular time, everything would be inauspicious. And she then quickly uh, helps to arrange Radharani's marriage with Abhimanyu. So there's a, a number of Leelas that the Goswami describe. I'd have to look up the particular sources that indicate that Nandini Soda's heartfelt desires to unite Radha and Krishna. In fact, everyone in Vrindavan wants to unite Radha and Krishna. That's the, even the so-called opposition. That's actually their heart's desire. I mean, there's a pastimes of where Krishna dresses as a girl and goes to Radharani's house. And where Jatila, Radharani's mother-in-law, will tell Radharani, you know, you please embrace this person. One time Krishna appears as Radha's cousin. And you please, you know, invite this girl to stay overnight and take care of her. And Jatila feels such ecstasy when riding Krishna embracing, although she doesn't know that it's Krishna. So this is also, that is really their innermost desire. Although as part of the Leela and your Yoga Maya, they may not externally act that way. This is the, the ultimate happiness of the soul, is the uniting of Radha and Krishna or Sitaram or Rukini's work to be sure. That is the that is where we get our happiness from, and that is what's happening in the Hare Krishna mantra. Jai, thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, you know, I was going to say that uh, this class is just so amazingly illuminating, I and mean, there's just so many important points. I would say it's, uh, it's worthy of being transcribed and put into a BTG article. I mean, whenever I have time, I do read the purports, like I read this one yesterday in preparation for this class, and I didn't 
even come close to seeing all of these amazing points. Um, however, I do have a challenge. Uh, you gave some very nice examples, you know, like for instance, even you see a rug on the floor, you think that there's intelligence that produces, or you, know, you just can't like drop dynamite and expect uh, a house to suddenly appear. Those are all very powerful arguments. Um, now here's another argument. There are things that arise spontaneously, just even on our own body. You know, we have our digestive system. You know, we have no control over that. We have our hairs, our nails. This is an argument from uh, Alan Watts. You know, he was that, I guess, like a Zen teacher. So he's saying, so similarly, life spontaneously uh, comes about. Okay, let's take, he's saying that because there's something wonderful that happens where we can't see the source, therefore there's no source. That's his argument. So there are wonderful things that come about where we can't see where and how they've come about, therefore they've come about randomly. Whereas my argument is, let's take everything we know of that does have a source and that we can find the source and we can see the source. So anything that exists where we know who made it and how they made it, we are very easily able to come up with an axiom that the degree of intelligence and personality and creativity and competence of the creator is exhibited to some extent in what they create. So even a very simple format, let's take something really, really simple, a piece of cloth. We know the source of a piece of cloth. We know that a piece of cloth is not created by a random force. We know a piece of cloth could not be created by an animal unless the animal has some specialized talent like a spider. But, you know, you couldn't have a deer or even a chimpanzee. We know that a piece of cloth could not even be created by a two-year-old. I mean, maybe a two-year-old could be trained to create a really simple pot holder. But a nice floor rug with some, you know, design. That had to be created by a human being, probably at least age five or six, with a reasonable amount of intelligence. So if we can say that about the items we perceive where we do know the source, then we can logically extrapolate to those items where we don't know the source. And archaeologists do this all the time. So archaeologists dig up some city. How do they tell what's a rock and what's a rock tool? How do they know? They can't see the source. They're not able, they're not able to perceive directly the source of the particular stone that they have in their hand. How can they tell whether it was created by random forces or by intelligence? And sometimes it's hard. But there are certain distinguishing features of that which is created by intelligence and by design, which really even a very average person can discern. And there may be some things that are borderline just like we can tell the difference between what's living and what's not living, but some things like viruses are kind of borderline. Are they living or not living? Generally, we're pretty sure. 
we're saying if you can tell the difference between something that's created by intelligence and something that's not, when you know the process of creation, apply that same thing to something where you don't know the process of creation, and what's the more logical conclusion? When we know the source of something, we have zero experience that something, the complex intertwining, one thing dependent on another, is created by a random force or is created by anything less than very developed intelligence. So what logic tells us that something that's even more complex when we don't know the source of the method of creation was created by chance? Hi, I have no argument. This is fantastic. I have a question. Uh, does. Uh, one may imagine uh, they have a relationship, a particular rati with Krishna, <clears throat> um, or some sort of attraction to the Leela. Uh, how can one know that that's a real attraction, that that's actual, the real situation with their spiritual attraction? Oh, that's such a lovely question. So how do you, how do you know that you're awake? Are you asking me? Yeah. How do you know you're awake? Uh, my eyes are open and I'm seeing everything around me. Okay. So you know that there's, when you're asleep, you might dream that you're awake. And you might be fooled by it. I mean, I've dreamt sometimes that I woke up and went about my day. And when I actually woke up, I was very confused as to what day it is. That's happened to me a few times in my life, you know, that I, I woke up and I thought it, that a day had already passed because I'd already dreamed about doing things. And I got confused. But if we look at the quality of our activities in a dream and the quality of our activities while we're awake, we find that they have a different quality. It's just like, uh, what's the difference between watching a movie my mother took us to see when my mother was alive. She had a big um, IMAX theater across the street from her house. And she would treat my, my children when they were young and us to see different uh, nature and documentary films at the IMAX. So we went, went and saw a film about Niagara Falls, I think it was. Now, I've actually been to Niagara Falls. So what's the difference of these IMAX films? And, and, and remember, at least a couple of them we saw were 3D. You know, you put on these 3D glasses and you're in the film. It looks like, it actually looks like you're going in a boat. And it looks like the water is spraying in your face. But there's still a difference in quality between watching a 3D IMAX. If you don't know what an IMAX is, it's like a four-story high theater, four-story high screen. Between doing that and actually going to Niagara Falls. There's a difference in quality. Now, watching the 3D IMAX is a real experience. It's not that it's not a real experience. And it gives you some idea of what is Niagara Falls. But you can't say, now I've gone to Niagara Falls. You just can't. Although it's not, you can't say that it was just non-existent. There's something there. So in an immature state of devotion, one may feel some attraction to different leelas. Uh, 
that one may feel some sense about one's eternal relationship, and that may be correct, it may not be correct. You know, just like little children, some five-year-old may say, I want to be a doctor, and maybe he will be a doctor, or maybe he won't be a doctor. You can't necessarily say it's incorrect, but you can't also necessarily say it's correct. And how do you tell the difference? There's a difference in quality. You know, little girls often pretend they're getting married. But their feelings when they actually get married, when they're mature, are quite different. Now, when you're a little girl, and if I try to explain to a five-year-old girl the kinds of feelings that she'll have at 25, she won't really be able to understand them. You know, if a five-year-old girl comes to me and says, and how will I know what will how will I know what it feels like to actually be in love with a boy? How can I explain it to her? I I can try, but I, what I can say is you'll know it when you actually feel it. You'll know it. There won't be any doubt. You know, when you're really at Niagara Falls, you won't say, "Is this a movie?" You know, when you're really there in the boat going under the falls and you're being hit by the spray, you won't say, am I, am I actually just in the IMAX theater in New York with my 3D glasses on? Hello. You know, so when, when you actually fall in love with somebody, you don't think, am I just a, a kindergarten student with some immature infatuation? Now, having said that, having said that, there is often an interim period. There's often an interim period between the sleep of, of uh, unconsciousness. Hold on one second. Uh, we can look at it when you get back for lunch break if you want. There's often an interim period between the, the sleep of, of unconsciousness in Maya and full wakefulness in Krishna consciousness. In fact, full wakefulness expands like a, a flower. Just like we have rose bushes out here. And first the rose buds are green and, and very small. And gradually the red starts manifesting from the green and it becomes a red bud. And then it starts to open but the inside is still closed. And eventually the whole thing opens and eventually the petals drop off and the rose hip starts to form. So bhakti is compared like this, that it's generally a gradual development. It's generally a gradual development. And therefore, it is quite common that when it first starts to develop, one may have some doubt as to whether or not it's real. And we could compare this to two things. We can compare this to waking up, that when we first wake up in the morning, we're at a stage where we're not fully awake. And we may not even be sure if we're fully awake. We're like, am I still awake? Am, am I dreaming? Am I sleeping? We don't really know. We may even be going back and forth between dreaming and wakefulness. The same thing happens when going from childhood to puberty. That, I mean, I, I remember being 12 years old and taking out my doll and kind of being on the border of being interested in playing with them and not being interested in playing with them. I still was getting some taste from it, but not much. So there's an interim period. Haridas Sakur very nicely describes this as when the sun is below the horizon, but yet is giving enough light 
so that you can at least discern shapes. You can see things in silhouette. You can't see the color. And at that point, although you can certainly see, and although there is certainly light, and although you may be on the platform of liberation, things are still hazy. So they're definitely, when this first awakens, when one's saibhav with Krishna, when one's attraction to a particular form of the Lord and a particular relationship with the Lord first awakens, it is very, very common for the devotee to wonder, is this real or not? And especially for the devotee to say, well, wait a minute, I still have so many anarchists and so many material attachments. How can this possibly be real? So I would suggest that if someone has some experience which is of a very different quality than, uh, than other experiences, that you take a guidance from a, take personal, individual guidance from uh, senior Vaishnavas, I will put that in plural because Krishna puts Sadvadi Praniparthena, he puts that in plural. And you take shelter of some senior persons that you pray to Krishna to guide you to the persons who will help you the most and that you also pray to Krishna to guide you to the places in Shastra that will help you the most to understand whether what you're experiencing is real or not. And if it's real, how to nourish it and develop it. Mother Emily, do you have time for one other question? One more, yes. Okay. In the purport, uh, there's the, there's two very powerful sentences. Uh, the illusion, conditioned souls, material nature out of ignorance, they seek mundane, temporary... Uh, relationships that are full of inequities, and then unless we establish that relationship with the Lord, then uh, then it will be eternally nice. Um, you were mentioning in the last class, I think it was uh, very appropriate. You're saying that relationships in this world uh, between individuals, many times you'll find that one party is blaming the other party, and then the other one is defending themselves. Um, uh, full of inequity. Uh Is there a way to break out of this, or is that what, is it that the other party should practice uh, Trinata, peace, and chain up? Is that the way to break out, or is the only way that you can become happy is simply to reestablish your relationship with Krishna and just expect that all relationships in this world are going to just be Okay, well, there's three modes of nature and there's transcendence. And then there's levels of transcendence. So the closer you get to transcendence, the less you'll be disturbed by material relationships or anything else. And there's a lot of excellent relationship material, material within the modes of nature, relationship guidance out there that'll bring you from ignorance to passion. Blaming and defending is very much in, in, in the mode of ignorance. Maybe a little bit of passion. Uh, you know, if someone in ignorance, for example, is expert at insulting others. I know of many people where their relationships consist of how to, be, how to expertly insult the other person. So there's certainly a lot of guidebooks out there, a lot of courses you can take 
that will help bring you from ignorance to passion or from passion to goodness in your relationship. And the closer that you come to goodness, the happier you will be in your relationship. And this is true whether the other party in the relationship participates or not. So if the other person, you know, if you're stuck somehow in a relationship with someone who's in a lower mode, you can still be, you can still be personally happy. And please don't think that Trinodopi and Matrasparsis Tukantea means gritting your teeth. It doesn't. Matrasparsis Tukantea Sitos Nasukudukida Agamapaino Nichas Samsatikshasrabaratik Satikshasrabaratik To tolerate does not mean I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, it's awful, it's awful, it's awful, but I just can't do anything about it, so I'm just going to agree to suffer. doesn't work. Can't agree to suffer because we're an undemaya biasat, we're pleasure-seeking, and so we just can't agree to suffer. That doesn't work. Now, you can try it. You can say, okay, I agree to suffer, but that's not my nature. I'm not an, a suffering being. <laughs> I can't deny my nature. I will seek happiness. Prabhupada says that here. They will seek happiness. He says that the that souls seek after perpetual happiness in all places. And my urge to seek happiness will break this false parity of tolerance. Toleration is, is a different thing. Toleration is something joyful and it's, it's peaceful. So you can do that to some extent by coming to the higher mode. It's not that one has to come to full transcendence to have reasonably peaceful and happy material relationships. In fact, Bhaktivinoda Thakur describes two kinds of material rasa. One which he says is uh, of this planet, which is physical. That's things like good food, uh, good sex, good comfortable clothing, opulent houses, things that are direct, you know, nice music, things that are directly in touch with our senses. And then he talks about the rasa of swarga, or the heaven, and that, he said, is emotional relationships. So the emotional content of our relationships with other people is a swarga kind of happiness, which means that on the heavenly planets, they basically get along with each other. Not always. I mean, we have some accounts in the Shastra of things on the heavenly planets that aren't very nice. But uh, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, abrahma bhuvana loka punarvartinojuna, relatively speaking, one can have material happiness in relationships the more one comes to the mode of goodness. That's all within the material sphere, and there's plenty of relationship gurus out there that will help you get from passion to ignorance or from ignorance to goodness, and their stuff is good. It's good, and if you really follow it, then at least most of the time, it works. It works at least to keep you happy. You may not fix your spouse or your kid or your mother or your father or whatever, but at least it works for you. And I, I can testify that that's the case. You know, I, I've studied a lot of these programs. I've used them myself, and I find that it keeps me peaceful and happy, genuinely tolerant in what would otherwise be unbelievably provoking situations where people are insulting me and blaming me and name-calling me and, you know, telling me one thing and then switching and telling me something else. And, you know, I, I don't think any of us is immune to having to deal with this on a fairly regular basis, even from other devotees. I could give you, I mean, I could talk for probably about 30 years just about my own personal experiences with devotees in this regard. You know, what, <laughs> what to speak of everything. But the ultimate cure is that I have to get all my relationship needs satisfied with Krishna. 
That's the only ultimate total cure. And if I have all of my relationship needs satisfied with Krishna, only then am I free to engage in relationships with other living entities on a platform of complete pleasure, no matter how they treat me. How they treat me becomes irrelevant. And the example that I've given is if you've already had a good meal, whether or not your host feeds you is irrelevant. If I visit your home and I've just eaten a good meal, even if you neglect me and don't feed me, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to feel offended by it. It just, it's just irrelevant. If you feed me something, I may take a little bit out of, out of love for you and out of consideration for you and out of respect and out of... Uh, but I don't need it. I already have my food. So if we're already plugged into Krishna, then as King David said, my cup runneth over. If, if, I'm already, if I'm already overflowing in my relationship with Krishna, then and only then am I undisturbed on an absolute platform by other people's things. And then, only, then and only then can I see other people's behavior with compassion rather than with anger. And then and only then can I deal with other people in a completely 100% respectful and loving and free way. But there are degrees. There are degrees. It's not all or nothing. It's not that until I become a pure devotee, I have to be involved in miserable, blaming, horrible, defending relationships. And, oh, well, I just have to put out with it till I become a pure devotee. No, that's nonsense. Prabhupada says gradual and proportionate. And one thing that we can do is with the areas where we, are, where we do still struggle, because even if you apply these material solutions, they are, after all, incomplete, and they do not, after all, get to the ultimate root. So there will still be problems. And when there are problems, at least we can say to ourselves, the reason I am having problems is not this other person. This other person is not the source of my problem. The source of my problem is that I am trying to get from this person what I should try to be getting from Krishna. I am I'm trying to buy you know, a watermelon at a hardware store, and that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with the store, and there's nothing wrong with wanting a watermelon. It's just that this store doesn't sell them. So that, you know, to have that mantra, Krishna will meet all of my needs and that my real problem is that I'm looking for Krishna in this person rather than looking for Krishna directly. This person is not the problem. That should help us deal with the time when our material solutions fall short. Okay, I think I need to end here. Jai, Mother Malachi, Jai. Uh, oh, I think I should just mention briefly in that regard that Prabhupada gives a lot of material solutions for relationship problems also. He doesn't only give the spiritual solutions. Prabhupada talks a lot about material means by which husband and wife can be happy and parents and children can be happy and bosses and employees can be happy. You know, we're, we're not... Just because we know the only ultimate solution is spiritual doesn't mean we don't also use material solutions. You know, while you're waiting for surgery, you might take some aspirin. <laughs> it's not that you say because the surgery is going to be the ultimate cure that while you're waiting for surgery, you're not going to have any intermediate partial methods. So that's the, the whole system of Varnashram is one. Okay, Jai, all glories to Shri Prabhupada, all glories to Shri Madhavatam. Jai. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.